This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. It's another episode of Transforming Culture, a podcast about asking hard questions about how we can engage with and transform the world around us as we work to keep faithfulness in our Christian lives. This week, we have a great episode about living in a post-Christian world, specifically Canada, and I'm thrilled that we have a fantastic speaker, Dustin Borland, here with us to share some of his thoughts. Fun story about Dustin, we had originally planned for a different Bible teacher this summer at NBC in week four, but in mid-May, we had to make the hard decision to switch speakers due to some conflicts of scheduling. Dustin very generously agreed to step in and speak at NBC, not just for our Transforming Culture session, but also for all our chapels, 10 sessions in all. We were incredibly grateful that Dustin did so much last-minute work to prepare all this, and I think you'll see how all that hard work has paid off in this talk. Dustin serves as the pastor at Springville Baptist Church in Stouffville, Ontario, and he's currently completing his Doctorate of Practical Theology at McMaster Divinity College in post-Christendom studies. After several years in Montreal, where he planted and revitalized a church, Dustin and his family returned to Ontario in 2022. Before moving to Montreal, Dustin and his wife Raquel served as foster parents to more than 15 teenage boys and worked as church planters. Dustin is passionate about the intersection of the gospel and culture, equipping the local church for mission, and can be found overindulging on coffee, hip-hop, and spicy chicken sandwiches. And other than those spicy chicken sandwiches, you'll hear that Dustin has, in my opinion, a great sense of humor that had me laughing throughout his talk and the Q&A. We hope that you enjoy this episode on living in a post-Christian Canada. I tend to think in movies a lot, like my brain just thinks in movies. Um, and when I think of our culture right now and the context that we're in, there's a very, very famous historic scene in the original Wizard of Oz, not the remake, but the original Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy just arrives in Oz for the first time. And it looks like this, I have it for you. And she's got this look on her face, right? And she's holding Toto and she famously says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And she's got this expression because all of a sudden the world has just opened up. The world is so different than the one that she is coming from. And she doesn't really know how she got there or why she's there, but she is there. And I think on many levels, on several levels here in Canada, socially, uh, spiritually, morally, and culturally, we're feeling a little bit like that where all of a sudden it's almost like the tectonic plates under our, our feet have just shifted overnight and we're, we're still just trying to like, we're just doing that. We're just kind of like, what is even going on? What is up? What is down? Um, how do I even figure out and navigate where we are right now? So we're feeling that because what has happened in our culture, specifically today, is that Christian beliefs and values and the Christian message generally are no longer assumed or generally the norm. 
So we can just assume right off the bat in a post-Christian Canada, the majority of people that we brush shoulders with do not have any kind of real, authentic familiarity with the gospel. And if they do, it's probably a characterization or a caricature of it, or it's very, very um, reductionistic. It's kind of a, a very minimal view of what the Christian gospel is actually about. So this feeling that we're feeling, right, because we're feeling all the feels, this feeling that we're feeling is that we are actually now feeling like we are outside the inside of our culture, that we're strangers to the wider kind of cultural scripts and stories and values. And Christian message no longer drives the assumed worldview. And when I say worldview, I mean the way that people see their world, the way that people understand who they are why they exist, the purpose of life and where they're going, their worldview is not informed by, fundamentally not informed by the Christian story anymore. And also what we're seeing is that the Judeo-Christian morals that have influenced Western culture for literally centuries no longer give the guardrails for what is in and out anymore. Those guardrails are gone and there's new guardrails put up by an entirely different cultural ethos almost overnight. And it has happened very fast. Historically, again, sociologists are wrestling with how fast this has actually happened, specifically in certain North American uh, cities um, and even provinces like Quebec here in Canada. The way that we have seen a wholesale walking away from one foundation for morals rooted in Christianity to an entirely different one that wants nothing to do with some of the moral and ethical framework of Christianity. So, the key term is post-Christian. So sometimes in, in, in the literature and the research, you hear post-Christendom. And what that is, is that experts are kind of identifying since the 1960s, in the West especially, we've seen really an erosion of the Judeo-Christian uh, pillars that have held up Western culture for thousands of years. And usually Christendom, when you hear Christendom, that most scholars would put that the beginning of Christendom in the fourth century with the Emperor Constantine in the year 313, where Christianity became kind of nationalized as the state religion. And that was kind of the beginning of Christendom, which meant that Christianity for the first few hundred years was pretty, pretty effective being a grassroots kind of ragtag group of revolutionaries who were mobile and on the move, influencing culture at the time that was very against them, that when Constantine kind of made Christianity the state religion, what happened is cultural voices ended up in the halls of power for culture. And it changed kind of the script of what the church was doing and the, and the mission of the church. And now there's, we can, you can ask some questions about that if you want later, but there's, there's pros and cons to Christendom. Depending on who you ask, some people will be like, Christendom, only bad. I'm glad it's over. Others would be like, no, we need to get Christendom back. Why can't we just get into the halls of power and make the decisions now, right? So depending on who you ask, there's a little bit of a, a difference of opinion on kind of the, the pros and cons of Christendom. But if we're just honest with, with where we are, we are now post-Christendom. We are now post-Christian, which means that the Christian faith and, and our values are not the main way that people in Canada construct their identity. It's not the main way that they understand their sense of self. And in fact, we've moved so quickly that the Christian message is not, at best, it's seen as archaic and kind of outdated. And at worst, it's actually seen as oppressive or repressive, right, to the, to the authentic self of our culture. Um, over two generations, we've seen this happen. Um, if you are a boomer in the room, so if you're born between 1946 and 1964, uh, sociologists are saying that you are the last generation that will be born with an assumed Christian worldview. 
So anyone younger than the boomer generation have not entered their world and have not seen their world through the lens of an assumed Christian worldview. They haven't actually understood their life through the lens of Christian thinking and the Christian story and the values that come with that. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it forces us to reevaluate some things. It forces us to reevaluate our identity as the church, our relationship to culture as the church, and also start to reimagine our future in a post-Christian Canadian society. Uh, Stuart Murray is a, a researcher in the UK, and he writes a lot on this. He's literally written the book on post-Christendom, and here's how he defines post-Christendom. Listen, post-Christendom is the culture that emerges as the Christian faith loses coherence within a society that has already been definitively shaped by the Christian story, and as the institutions that have been developed to express Christian convictions decline in influence. Now, if you notice about what, what he's talking about, it's everything that we've just said. But specifically, post-Christian means that there was some kind of a Christianized thing before that. That makes sense? So there's specific Western, sometimes it's called the Anglosphere. So different countries like Canada, uh, the US, the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, those countries that would make up the Anglosphere, their culture was driven and built upon certain Christian values that no longer are the pillars for the broader culture. That's how you would understand post-Christendom. You can't be post-Christian unless there was a kind of broad or, or a, a majority influence of Christian thinking in a culture. And that's what we're looking at here in the West. Um, in, in Asia, a Asian countries, in, in Africa, throughout Latin America, which didn't experience the kind of Christianization that other Western nations did, they're not experiencing kind of the, the post-Christian thing that we are. They don't have kind of Dorothy's look on, on her face uh, like we do because they never in, enjoyed or experienced some of those majority Christian values and influences in their culture the same way that the West did. So it's very interesting where we are. Right? We find ourselves kind of in Oz, um, figuring out like how do we actually navigate? How do we reevaluate what this looks like? Um, the good news, I'm going to dig into a couple things biblically now. The good news is that this isn't a new experience uh, for the community uh, of God. This isn't a new experience for God's people. It's not a new experience for the church. And it's not a new experience for the Old Testament covenant community of Israel. In fact, it's a very familiar experience called exile. All right, so all throughout scripture, we have this theme of, of exile. First uh, Peter chapter one, we'll look at a verse here real quick. Peter is writing to the church in the first century, and he writes this, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, identifies himself first to those who are elect exiles of the diaspora or the dispersion. They names all these regions according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I want to draw our attention to uh, the fact that Peter doesn't start with like methods and tactics on how to actually survive in the culture that they find themselves in, in modern-day modern Rome at his time. He starts by reminding them of who they are. He starts by reminding them of their identity. So regardless of where the church finds themselves culturally, right here we have a reminder of who we are. We're reminded of who we are regardless of where we find ourselves. And in ancient Rome, if you know anything about um, kind of that historical uh, period, citizenship was a really big deal. And it was a high privilege, right? It was a privileged status 
that, was, uh, that gave you the ability to elect government officials, own property. You could legally marry or divorce. Uh, you could pass on inheritance. And that came with, with citizenship. And you could only become a Roman citizen by birth or by being nationalized by the emperor himself. And that was called being a resident alien. And Peter uses language exactly like that to identify the church within that majority kind of Roman culture to remind them that they are elect exiles. In a sentence, Peter is reminding the church in that cultural moment that they are not yet home. He's reminding them not to settle, not to get distracted and forget who they are. It's their identity as exiles and a a diasporic people or a scattered minority that Peter underscores here. And this is the first time, I think, that we in Canada and many churches in Western cultures can actually identify with this. In the rest of the world, this has always been the experience because they've never really been kind of the majority cultural influence kind of writing the script of what the values of mainstream culture looks like. But here in Canada, we can actually identify, I think for the first time, with exilic language in scripture, understanding that we can actually identify with the biblical language of what it means to be an exile. And all throughout scripture, um, some Old Testament scholars say that, that exile is like the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's that big of a theme of a motif that's driven across. So whether it's that you start in the garden and you see Adam and Eve's exile from the garden or the wanderings of, of, of Cain in exile or Abraham's journey into Canaan or Joseph's deportation to Egypt or Moses's own exile and wandering in the desert. And then of course, Israel's own national exile, First in Assyria, then Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We have this meta-narrative of exile, of the people of God needing to wrestle with how to be who they are, regardless of where they find themselves. So biblically, we do have precedent for this, and kind of a a little bit of help for understanding what that looks like. Um, There's a Canadian theologian called uh, Douglas Hall, who I think was one of the first to identify uh, Canada and start to have this conversation about being in a post-Christian culture here in Canada, especially as he wrote um, different articles and, and published different things academically. But he's one of the first to kind of um, apply exile language and diasporic language to Canada um, in a book that he wrote in 1980 called Has the Church a Future? Question mark, right? And he identified three traits of the early church to encourage the Canadian church as we've wrestled with these cultural changes. And I'll just, I'll just list them for you, not at length, but just real quick. Number one, he points out that the early church was a community of belief, a community of belief, Meaning that you didn't come into the early church by being born into the faith or being nationalized or having a cultural association into the faith, but you actually had to profess belief in Jesus Christ and come and covenant yourself to the people of God. So it was a community of belief. Secondly, the early church was a a movement. He uses the word movement. The earliest Christians were known as a people of the way, that they were a people in transit, resisting kind of any sense of having arrived or having being able to just kind of like set up shop and, and, and settle in or being at home, that there were people on the move. And third, he says that the early church was a vast minority when it com- compared to the rest of the culture. And this is also reflected in Jesus's language as he talks about his disciples, where he calls his disciples yeast, uh, a candle in the night, a pinch of salt, and tiny lamps set on a hill. He identifies his followers as a creative minority. And the early church didn't hold power in 
some of the, the government um, uh, rankings and in the political arena or in economic and corporate affairs or in social and religious structures. Yet, we see that here we are, literally across the globe, worshiping Jesus because the church has continued to thrive, even with, through social insignificance and, and cultural irrelevance as minorities. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, we see in, in verse 6, it says that, that the church is literally turning the world upside down. And they're doing that as a creative minority in the midst of a majority culture. So that's encouraging. That should give us a hopeful hermeneutic as we think about this, as we think about the fact that a post-Christian Canada also presents a new missionary encounter for the gospel. That a post-Christian Canada actually means we also live in a pre-Christian Canada and that we're presented with all sorts of new opportunities, that we quite literally have the world coming to our doorstep as new people arrive in our country and we have opportunities with others who are completely unfamiliar with the Christian message. Now, the church, I think, we've tended to respond to cultural resistance in a few different ways. Um, James Hunter wrote a book um, about this, and he identifies a few. I want to list them here for you, and then we'll spend the rest of our time just kind of looking at a few ways that maybe we can respond to this. Uh, historically, there's been a few ways we've tended to respond to resistance culturally. Uh, the first is that we've become defensive against culture. So that's kind of taking the posture of, of seeing culture as a threat um, or an enemy. So we, we end up trying to do our best to either maintain or fight for a moral majority and become kind of the main voices in halls of power. And often that comes with maybe developing a bit of a blind spot sometimes to what culture is saying and why they're saying it. Um, and, but but that's, that's one response that the church has tended to have, and you see that in pockets, um, depend, again, depending on what tradition you find yourself in or, or what kind of church you're in now. Uh, secondly, or another tendency has been a withdrawal from culture. So we just kind of like, well, culture itself is like something that exists outside of the church. We don't really need to be a part of it or influence it. We're going to actually create our own subculture, right? So we just build a Christian subculture, um, maybe with high walls and bunkers, right? And kind of have a clear, clear division of like between us and the world. And then we do our thing. The problem with that, the weakness there is that th that can develop a blind spot for the Great Commission, I can de develop a blind spot for actually being salt and light in a culture that, that is fundamentally different than us. And then the third tendency we've had is a compromise with culture. And this has, has been, we, again, we see this in, in different places today, but this kind of sees cultural acceptance as the goal, right? So we kind of start to, to file certain edges off of the gospel for the sake of acceptance. We start to take kind of the majority messages of our culture and see how we can make the gospel fit into that. And by doing that, we end up losing or at least um, weakening Christian distinctiveness in our, our cultural moment. So those are three tendencies that we've, we've tended to have. Uh, my favorite example of, of calling us to kind of examine what our posture to culture is, is, is found in Jeremiah 29. When Jeremiah is talking to the exiles in Jeremiah 29, and he, and he says, he tells them how to live within uh, the, the state, the posture of, of being exiles. In uh, chapter yeah, 29, verse 5, he says this, I've sent you to exile and you're there, so build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. So increase, do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare, that's the shalom of the city, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it's in its welfare that you will find your welfare. So you notice what Jeremiah is doing with his prophetic voice, reminding the people who are in exile not to disengage, but to faithfully be present in the culture, not to abandon the the covenant and become unfaithful, but also not to abandon being present in the culture. So he's encouraging them to be faithful and present. And it's the peace of the city, the thriving and the flourishing of the city that the exiles are called to, to focus on. Not to be tourists who just consume and take what the city has to offer, but as resident aliens, as elect exiles, as chosen strangers who, who serve, who invest in the community and expand the Edenic garden into the rest of the world and to the ends of the earth. So with these tendencies that we have, some of us individually might have one of these tendencies as we think about our culture today, but there's no power in, in conformity. Uh, There's no power in withdrawal. Uh, There's no power in in outrage, but there is power in faithful presence as we try to navigate what it looks like to thrive in a post-Christian culture. So what does that look like? Uh, I just want to, we could do so much here, but three, I want to point out three ways that I think uh, we can start to think about what it means to kind of practice a faithful presence in a post-Christian culture. Um, specifically asking the question like, what, what does a faithful presence look like in a secularizing and post-Christian culture today? Uh, what does it look like for us as a church to actually think about having a, a new missionary encounter, right, with our, our Canadian neighbors and the communities that we find ourselves in? So I'm just going to hit three, three things that I think we can start to, to think about. Number one, uh, prioritizing personal and communal holiness. Prioritizing personal and communal holiness. A little bit later in 1 Peter, he reminds these elect exiles of exactly this. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, reminds them of their identity again, but you, plural, as a people, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you, plural, are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's that key term again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." See how Peter kind of elevates this distinction as being a people that is set apart from the rest of people, the rest of that culture is is going on with and the way that culture is living. Now, again, sometimes we think about holiness, we think about like personal holiness or communal holiness, right away you start thinking about like a list of things that you got to do or not do. So it's like, well, like holiness is like doing certain things like, well, church, of course, because that's where holy people hang out, right? Uh, You volunteer, you serve, you pray, you read your Bible, you smile a lot, whatever it is, that that's what you do when you're holy. But then there's also like the do nots of, of holiness. You don't, you know, drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those who do, right? Or, or any other list of things that you would say, well, that's not holy, whatever, whatever that looks like. But um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that a holy identity doesn't lead to things that we will abstain from and then also indulge uh, with. But biblically, it's, it's far more rich than that because it means to be set apart and specifically distinct, 
that holiness actually has this element of moral resistance, a moral resistance and distinction, that, that a holy people is a different kind of people altogether, that we live with an entirely different set of values and priorities. That biblically, as we look, as we go through the call to holiness, especially with Israel and the covenant, there is a moral and social distinction for the sake of mission, right? So if you notice what Peter just said there, he's saying, hey, um, be holy so that you may proclaim the excellencies of who God is. So the, 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 the means to the end of mission is holiness, that, that we would be made holy. We don't become holy. We are made holy so that we are then sent out as nonconformists into the broader culture to show them what this distinct identity looks like. Why? Because our God is holy. And there's something about a personal and communal holiness that points back to him to his character, to his goodness. And that's what faithful presence uh, shows up as. Not a retreat from, but a faithful presence in. Living as nonconformists of certain cultural norms and values and morals. Um, my doctoral supervisor, uh, Lee Beach, uh, wrote a book on exile, and he called holiness um, engaged nonconformity. Engaged nonconformity. I think that's really helpful. That, that holiness is an engagement of culture, but it's also a non-conformity to culture, right? And here's what he says. Just let him speak for himself. <laughs> Exilic holiness is fully engaged with culture while not fully conforming to it. Living as a Christian exile in Western culture calls the church to live its life constructively embedded within society while not being enslaved to all of its norms and ideals. That kind of engaged nonconformity shows up and kind of asks the question of us is, can you start to follow Jesus today and barely know? That's the question. And an engaged nonconformity, an identity of personal and communal holiness would say no. Like you can't start following Jesus, especially today, and just kind of like culturally by association become a Christian. Why? Because there's no more social capital for being a Christian. Whereas in Christendom, there was more social capital for being a Christian. Today in post-Christian culture, there's a social cost to being a Christian. And so you can't start following Jesus and barely know anymore. There's something like, there's a little bit more power to it when it comes to moral living and, and just decisions and priorities and the distinction of how you live your life. So what does that look like today? Well, I think a few things. It looks like fighting for self-control and restraint in a decadent culture that we live in. I think it looks like um, pursuing honesty and humility in how we portray ourselves in person and online. I think it looks like pursuing proximity with strangers instead of settling for living life in echo chambers. Uh, I think it looks like prioritizing generosity over accumulation and materialism. Um, I think it looks like humble submission to one another in the community um, that we belong to. As, as followers of Jesus, instead of trying to continue to push to the front of the line and, and clamor for attention and influence. And I think it looks like resisting tribalism and, and pursuing life on life in, in diverse and nuanced community and keeping the primary things primary. I think all of that kind of points to what it looks like to, to be engaged nonconformists and having a personal and communal commitment to holiness. Secondly, because we'll run out of time, I promise. Secondly, I think it means that we need to become slower to speak and quicker to listen. I think we need to engage in active listening of what our culture is actually talking about and why they're talking about it. 
Uh, Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Um, James 1.19 calls us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I think too often, uh, we, the church, I think we're guilty of just drowning out culture's voice in certain topics because we disagree, rather than doing the hard work of even trying to enter in and understand why they have arrived there in the first place. And not just answer questions, because we, we should be able to answer questions, and that's good, but to also question people's answers. In our culture today, people haven't arrived at where they've arrived with like nuanced, thoughtful consideration, right? A lot of the ideas that people walk around with day in and day out, they've inherited them from somewhere, and they haven't had anybody actually sit with them and, and kind of just walk through and question how they arrived there and why they arrived there and enter into that and listen well. And I think we have an opportunity to do that. I think faithful presence actually means good listening. And I also think we're guilty of assuming that we know culture better than we do. I think we need to really understand why culture is asking the questions that they're asking before we do try to answer them. Uh, there was a recent study by, by the Barna Group called Reviving Evangelism uh, that came out. And they did kind of a huge, huge survey of, of non-Christians um, and talked to them about evangelism, like how they feel when someone is trying to share kind of the Christian message or the gospel with them. The number one thing that non-Christians said that they were looking for in a person to talk about faith with was that they listen without judgment. And the second thing was that they don't force them to make a conclusion too quickly. So that's kind of indicative, right? Like if that's what most people are feeling day to day, that should kind of cause us to pause and think about how we are approaching our neighbors, how we're approaching the people in our lives when we think about how we're hearing them and listening to them and then how we are trying to engage them with the gospel. Because we do need to listen well to understand that we have this ever-changing culture, but a never-changing gospel. And it's, an, it's until we actually listen deeply to this ever-changing culture and some of the, the deepest questions of meaning and purpose and value that they're asking, that then we can take this never-changing gospel, the good news that we've been talking about for the last few days, right, and actually speak it into some of those same questions and some of those deep identity and existential things that people are wrestling with, right? So that was an interesting study. You can get that online. I encourage you to do it. It's, it's, it's very telling. It gives us a, just a good idea, a benchmark of kind of where people are at. Um, one thing I gotta, I gotta say, listening to somebody without judgment, we gotta be careful here, doesn't mean agreeing or validating, agreeing with them or validating everything they're saying. It just means not talking and listening. And I think sometimes we feel like we're in a conversation and like you're talking with somebody and they're spouting all sorts of stuff that you're like, oh my gosh, like I, I disagree so much with so much of what they're saying. And all you wanna do is just like, I need to tell them the truth, right? And yes, you do. But we also need the relational capital to get there. We also need to do the hard work of listening and entering in. And this is like incarnational, right? And again, we, the gospel is incarnational. We have the God made flesh. We have the God who enters in. We have the God who actually comes and, and hears and feels and acts. And that's the good news of the gospel. So this encourages us to also be incarnational in our approach to being faithful to the gospel, yes, but also present in the midst of some of these cultural conversations uh, that we're having. Um, I think we've also lost like the art of, of conversation because there's not like a lot of um, thoughtful 
dialogue happening anymore. It's just sound bites and tweets and TikTok, right? So you don't have a lot of like long form thought either. So people aren't really like arriving at things with long form thought. Like tonight is going to be long for a lot of us, right? It's like, I just, Dustin, couldn't you have just put this in a TikTok, right? And that's how most people think. That's how most people arrive at what they believe and why they believe it. So we, we kind of have to sit with that, that, <laughs> that desire to, to be patient and kind of wade through stuff with people and, and be quick to listen and slower to speak and, and kind of earn that spot to actually um, speak in. I, I heard one thing years ago and it stuck with me that being heard is so close to being loved that for many people, they don't know the difference. And I think that's true. I think that's true today, especially with all of our digital age connectivity, but the loneliness that we feel. We're more connected than ever, but more lonely than ever. We're more connected than ever, but we have less community than ever. And I think that that's definitely true. So there's something that we can, we can be thinking about. Uh, third and finally, as far as just faithful presence and what this could look like or starting to think about this, is prioritizing hospitality in evangelism. Prioritizing hospitality in evangelism. Now, usually when you hear like hospitality, you might think like Martha Stewart, but like pre-Snoop Dogg Martha Stewart, if you know what I'm talking about. No, if you don't know, don't worry about it. Don't Google it. But you just think like Martha Stewart and like baked goods and aprons or, or whatever it is, um, or an elaborate dinner party and fine food and entertaining your guests. That's usually what we think about when we think about hospitality. But uh, all throughout, especially the New Testament, the Greek word for hospitality is a compound word of love and stranger. And hospitality is, is actually just the love for stranger, the, the demonstration of love for stranger. Hospitality is how we welcome and receive strangers without reward or gain, because it's about the stranger being welcomed in, right? That's what hospitality is. It's, it's also where we get the Latin word hospice, which is where we get hospice and hospital, right? And hospital is just home for the stranger. That's what it means. And that's where hospitality comes from, that it's a, creating a welcoming, a, a safe, a, and a non-threatening space. That's what hospitality looks like. So if I was to take a stab at like defining biblical hospitality as we look at it throughout the scope of scripture, it's really just anything that we do or say that makes a stranger feel heard, known, and welcomed. That's hospitality. That we would make strangers feel heard, known, and, and welcomed. When we create a hospitable place, it's that we are creating a space where strangers can be converted to friends. That outsiders can be treated as insiders. That, that those who, are, who feel unheard can be heard. Those who are unknown are, are known and named. They're, they're recognized. They're recognized and, and they belong. That's what, that's what hospitality looks like. And if you think about what like strangers is, like, I mean, not strange. Some of us are just strange, right? But a stranger by definition is just a people, a person without a place. Strangers are people without a place. But we've got to start thinking not just physical place. That's true. But strangers, are, when we think about strangers, more than that, it's also, you got to think like relational strangers, without a place relationally, without a place emotionally, without a place uh, of financial need and, and, and displacement socially, whatever that looks like, that we kind of like expand the definition of what strangers look like so that then we can understand what it looks like to be hospitable to strangers everywhere we find them. So hospitality really happens anytime and anywhere we find ourselves positioned as a host, as the one who would be serving another. 
the one that we would be making people feel welcome wherever we find ourselves. So it doesn't have to be at our dinner table, although that would be great. And we're going to look at a parable this week of Jesus at the table doing exactly that. But it doesn't have to be at our table with an apron on. It can be anywhere we find ourselves that we can be a presence that is hospitable to strangers. And the kind of inroads that that will start to create for sharing the gospel. And we saw this, especially in our ministry, in our time in Quebec in Montreal, which again, the rest of Canada is still, I'd say probably about 15 years behind Quebec when it comes to some of its post-Christian leanings. But we definitely saw this in, in Montreal in our time there, where as we sat with people and as we just welcomed them, like it wasn't us being the most convincing and arguing the best you know, proofs of the gospel. It was us being the most welcoming, that then they started to become open to that, those kinds of conversations, the, the deeper conversations about life, about things that actually matter. And then we started to see opportunities and inroads for sharing the good news of the gospel into those situations. So um, one, of my, one of my favorites on this is probably Henry Nouwen. He wrote a book called Reaching Out. Um, and he said this, it'll be up here. It is obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. Hospitality means primarily the, primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. I think that this is an expression of, of a faithful presence, that hospitality is really at the core of the story of redemption. That, that for us, on this side of grace, those of us who are followers of Jesus, We've, we've experienced the hospitality of God, that God has extended hospitality to strangers and sinners, the most undeserving, and, they've, and, and that God has welcomed us in to his table. And we're looking forward to the marriage supper of the lamb, the final table that we will get to go in and eat as sons and daughters who have been welcomed in, right? There's nothing short of, of the story of redemption here. So no question, hospitality just flows through the whole of scripture uh, and you can't unsee it once you see it. I'll give you uh, one example in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19. I told you it was one of my favorite chapters earlier. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 says this, when a stranger sojourns, comes and lives with you among you in your land, you shall, do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Here's the reason. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Notice that God gives his people the why behind hospitality. The why behind welcoming strangers. And that is because they are strangers. They're outsiders to the covenant of grace. They're outsiders to the experience of salvation until God rescues them and, and invites them in. So, from our experience, I think that the most effective evangelism that we've seen has started with hospitality. And that doesn't mean that we're going to stop uh, practicing evangelism when it comes to speaking about the gospel, but it does mean that it might change where we invite people first. In a post-Christian culture, inviting people to church things is kind of weird, right? I mean, planting a church, planting a couple churches in Montreal and revitalizing another one, like you could set up the coolest, sexiest church in the province of Quebec and no one is coming, right? But the second that you actually start to invite people to other spaces 
where they're welcome and they belong, and then you can start to have those conversations, you start to see an entirely different posture in people that are very much secular and and post-Christian. So it might just mean that we have to change where we're inviting people first, that we're inviting people to our tables and to our sofas and to our porches and to our fire pits before we will necessarily invite them to a church thing. Not that we won't get there, but it might mean just being a little bit more intentional with practicing hospitality um, in a creative way. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, I think I saw this book in the bookstore, uh, wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And um, if you don't have that book, if you haven't read it, get get it, read it. It'll be so convicting because she's amazing and we're not. Um, But here's what she says about hospitality. Our post-Christian neighbors, acknowledging where we're at, right? Our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity, Hospitality spreading from every Christian home. That includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Uh, She sums up a little bit later in the book. She says, practicing radically ordinary hospitality is your street cred to your post-Christian neighbors. It's your street cred to your post-Christian neighbors. And I think that's true. So um, let me just end with a bit of hope for us as we think about this, and then we can field a few questions and get you out of here. But in Matthew 9, verse 37, Jesus says that the harvest is what? Plenty, plentiful, but the workers are few. This means that the fields are ripe for harvest if we're ready to pull up our sleeves and be prepared and trained for the work and get into the field. If there's anything that's true about our post-Christian Canada, It's that the future of the church is in the field and not in the barn. That in Christendom, we we could just kind of spend more time in the barn than in the field. But now in a post-Christian culture, we're forced to reevaluate that and spend more time in the field than in the barn. Because if we build it, they will come just simply isn't true anymore. But our opportunities for hospitality, friendships, discipleship, Church planting are continuing to increase because of some of the cultural changes that we see. So it might, hear, it might seem strange that I'm actually very hopeful because a post-Christian Canada also means that we are living in a pre-Christian Canada. And for the first time in centuries, that means that you and I in the West, in our current cultural moment, will have an opportunity to tell the Christian story to people who it is almost entirely unknown. And that that's good news. It just means that for us, rather than it signals some kind of a loss of a culture war, it calls us to a thoughtful engagement of culture. It calls us to a missionary opportunity of culture, that we would live as a countercultural community of people in a post-Christian culture. So it's time for us to, to think about this and take Jesus at his word, that no one who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Now is the time that we can burn the ships. Going back is not an option, but thriving as exiles and being faithful and present is. One of the big things I wrestle with through our current world is how to live in the world as a Christian, but not fall into the cultural traps that are around us. Dustin's discussion about living as exiles is one that resonates strongly with me, and I would definitely encourage you to dig into some of the resources that we've put in our show notes to get more information. That being said, I was glad to get to dig in further with Dustin during a short Q&A session that we did during our week at NBC. Give it a listen now. 
Dustin, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be on the podcast today. We're really excited to get to debrief a little bit of what you talked about this week at NBC mm-hmm. about post-Christian Canada. And I know that our audience who's listening now will have just heard your talk. Mm-hmm. We're recording this all the way back in the summer. So, you know, it's going to be a couple months from now when they hear it. But, um, you know, I'm I'm interested. You talked a little bit, um, you know, about a whole bunch of stuff. But one of the things you said that got my attention, I'm just going to dive right in. You know, uh, you said that most of our initial reactions to anti Christian sentiments, you know, sometimes in a post-Christian world, they're very negative, right? There's escapism Mm -hmm. and all of that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that so many reactions to people being anti-Christian are negative nowadays? I think many Christians around the world are just used to persecution, but especially in the West, we've got this kind of like, no, I need to push back. What's what's that? Where's that from? Yeah. I think that is a trait unique to uh, post-Christian culture, meaning that if you are in a post-Christian context, it's that you've enjoyed some type of a Christianized culture. Mm. And so it's unfamiliar territory. Um, we all know that if we grew up playing sports or play on a team, like it's easier to play at home um, than play away. Right. And I think right now we're navigating what it looks like to not be home anymore. So even um, in my talk, I, I usually start with a picture of Dorothy, you know, at the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, we're not in Toto, uh, Can- Kansas, Kansas, not in Kansas Toto, anymore. Exactly. Right, yeah. and, and it's just this awareness as we're coming kind of... O- we're, we're waking up to the fact that, wait, there has been so many uh, cultural changes and quite suddenly. And so generationally, depending on where we find ourselves in this kind of post-Christian culture that we're in, um, it's, it's natural to, to feel that unfamiliarity and just pull back a little bit and, and have that knee jerk of, um, even as we talked about either being defensive against that, mm. that, that other culture um, or withdrawing from it because it's just easier. Like, we, let's just go over here and, and build our own table instead of trying to sit at other people's tables. Uh, or if it's compromised with, it's like, you know what? I don't even want the pressure of some of the, the friction of the Christian mes- message anymore. Let's just lean in and make sure that we're really accommodating uh, some of the other scripts and, and narratives of our culture. So I think that, that those are easier. Um, that comes with a, a certain um, alleviation of some of the pressure of that difference. Whereas faithful presence, uh, being both faithful and, and understanding that there's going to be uh, some, some friction with what we teach and what we believe, uh, but also present in the midst of, of a culture that's very different uh, is harder to actually take kind of the, the full vision of the gospel socially, morally, and all of the, the elements that make it up and mm. bring it into a post-Christian culture. I'd say, I'd say that is one of the challenges. Um, secondly, I do think we need to pay attention to our generational differences. Um, we, because of the digital age, especially, um, the gap between the way that generations think is growing larger and larger. So if, you know, if, if a boomer and a millennial and a zoomer, a Gen Z are sitting in the same room because of their exposure to the world, especially through technology, um, they think so different. And I think that, uh, older, anybody kind of Gen X and older, um, knew a Christianized Canada. There, there were certain um, assumed values and morals that they, they grew up in, and there, it was normative in a lot of the spaces they right. found themselves. And so anyone kind of Gen X and younger, that's actually not usually been the case for them. They've, they've been more aware of um, just diversity of thought uh, with their own, whether it's religious beliefs with their own classmates and friends and neighbors. Um, and so there's, there's a different re- reception, I think, for younger um, Christians and leaders, because this has always been the world we've been in. So it's not as strange. And so I do think there's some key generational differences too. So again, being very 
patient with one another um, in, in kind of intergenerational conversations too, to know that this world is very different than, than some, uh, some of the culture that others may have, have been used to is really important. Yeah. One of the things you said just there made me think in terms of generational difference, it just, it, I see from the outside that there's an older generation that is still quite passionate about sharing the gospel in traditional evangelical ways, right? Sure. Street corner preaching, um, you know, making muffins for your neighbors. Right. <laughs> like you yeah. know, you've slipped a tract in the middle of each muffin or something. Right. Yeah. Like what? In, I in just the paper. into this. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and, and that has a time and place sometimes too, and I'm not trying to knock it, right? Yeah. Um, I think you can have lots of conversations about that. On the flip side, it does seem like the younger generations are showing a lot more apathy towards traditional evangelism. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and, you know, even, you know, we just spoke with Bernard McQuavie in the last episode, and he was talking about the idea of presence, persuasion, and, and all of this. Like, you need to be yeah. present with people before you can start persuading them about the gospel. Yeah, nice. Um, but... There is a flip side to that. There's a little bit of a darkness there too. Like if we're being apathetic and just not even pushing back at all, yeah, that's also a negative. And I'm I'm not really asking a question so much as making a discovery in my own mind that, you know, it's it's a negative that we're not even willing to push back. Yeah. Right. That we're just, you know what, you can think that and that's okay. Yeah. Well, that's not okay, actually, if we believe what the Bible says to right. be true. We need to try to make sure those people understand there's a difference. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with that that presence and like persuasion piece. Yeah. I think he said you need to be present, you need to proclaim the word, and then yeah. you need to persuade people about the word. Those are his three Ps. Right. Yeah. It's a good Baptist thing to do. It is a yeah. great Baptist thing to do. Yeah. I'm still learning that. Yeah. Part. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I think the proclaim part is really, we have to retain that. And I think yeah. older um, generations, um, again, probably because there is still... Um, at least familiarity with a piece pieces of the gospel mm. or the Christian story, um, they were probably more bold just to be able to, yeah. it's almost like you were reminding your non-Christian neighbors about a story that they've forgotten. Whereas now evangelism actually has changed and, and has to be contextualized differently because we're not reminding people of a story that they've forgotten. We're actually entering into sharing something that they are completely unfamiliar with for right. the most part. Right. And so we can't lose the proclamation piece though. I mean, evangelism is to proclaim, it is to actually announce the good news. So finding ways that we can contextualize that well, um, while being sensitive and present, I think is, is vital too. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things you talked about uh, is that, and, and I see this even in my own life, so I'm not, you know, it's the pot calling the kettle black maybe, but uh, you talked about people struggling to listen to others without also trying to validate and respond to comments. Like there's this wrestle of, can I actually hear someone yeah. without trying to refute them or to prove myself right? Right. Um, you know, one of the observations I was making as you were speaking was that, you know, I think Christians actually struggle with that quite a lot. Like mm. we, we feel this need to defend Jesus yeah. instead of just hearing people for where they're at. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why is it something that maybe Christians in particular struggle with? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when you look at kind of post-Christian research and stuff that, that we're seeing come out of like Western Europe or other post-Christian cities like Portland or places in Canada, like Quebec. Um, I think the, um, you know, the, the ability to listen because we have been the ones talking and doing the proclaiming and, and mm. our evangelism has been built around, well, no, no, did you tell your neighbor about Jesus? Right. We haven't actually practiced uh, a lot of listening. And I think we've struggled because we're not in control when we're listening. Um, entering into someone else's world is hard and listening is an act of, of empathy. Listening is an act of like incarnation into someone's world. And so that knee jerk of like, wait, let me, let me correct you. Let me stop you there because they've said something that is maybe, maybe false, like completely false. Or maybe it's 
maybe it's not even in line with what we would believe or to correct a, a misconception. Um, that's, there's a time for that. But I think it's when people actually feel heard as we listen to them, that they're willing to listen and, and hear as well. And so I think um, that's, that's probably a piece of it. And I think I fight this in my own heart too. I, mm. I, I confuse sometimes listening with agreement. Yeah. Um, right. Affirmation it, and acceptance. Exactly. And kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So to listen to someone doesn't mean agree. I mean, even if you're nodding your head, be like, mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm with you. Like, a, like you're, you're entering in, you're, you're allowing them to invite you into their world and walk through where they currently sit, um, what their assumptions are and their values are and what they currently believe. And again, I think that the church taking that posture intentionally and actively listening is going to actually create a lot of inroads for us to speak, but it's the, the listening piece that will get us there. Hmm. You talked about uh, some comments about how post-Christian only really happens in a place where Christendom had previously existed. So, you know, we think about Europe, we think about North America, but mm-hmm. not necessarily in places like Asia or Latin America, some parts of Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also talked about how there are a lot of people now in Canada who actually don't have any history with the gospel. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of a generation where I, I would say that most of the people uh, above me had some, some kind of experience with the gospel or church or something. Uh, There's people in my generation for whom that might not be true. Certainly below us, you know, it's just not, we're not, we're in that post-Christian space uh, and that's happening. I was thinking as you were speaking about it, like, do we ever get to a point where the West becomes like a fresh mission field Mm -hmm. that's almost unevangelized. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's been conversations about Quebec being a province that's like that now because there's so little gospel centered conversation happening. There's a ton of reference to the Roman Catholic church. And so that's, that is Christendom in some sense. So people have Mm -hmm. a certain expectation of the church. Do you think, you know, how long is that going to take? Are we ever going to get to a place where that happens? I know that a lot of people experience animosity towards Christianity right now. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where non-believers are just, they're not, um, to use the same word again, they're apathetic towards the gospel as opposed to holding an- antipathy towards the gospel? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good question. And it's important to kind of pause on that because I think in Canada, you know, we're not just seeing um, a secularization of culture. We're also seeing a pluralization of culture. And so we have these two things happening simultaneously where our secular culture is definitely leaning a certain way and, and getting their cues for values and morals and, and worldview uh, from a, a non-Christian framework. Um, but we also have a pluralizing of our country at the same time, hmm. whether it's from immigration, um, from countries that are not Christian also. So now our neighbors are, are looking very different. And I think that we will probably feel simultaneously antagonism from some, um, but then just either ignorance or apathy from others. And I think for a while, we'll probably have to kind of dance um, between Mm. those two things. I know that in our experience doing ministry and life in Quebec, um, Quebec is already at the point where antagonism really isn't, like it is just complete apathy now. Um, So if Quebec is maybe 15, 20 years ahead of the rest of Canada and some of its, you know, post-Christian leanings, um, then that means that's probably what it's gonna take for some of the other pockets of Canada. But I think also, you know, we, we have like four different Canada's within Canada. Right. And so I wouldn't speak for our entire nation culturally because yeah. we have so many, I mean, you just, you know, go from the East coast to the West coast and you have, you you visit four different Canada's depending on um, who is there and, yeah. and contextually uh, what we're looking at. 
So I think in spaces like Quebec, we already see an apathy where it's not that they're looking to the church to say like, hey, help us answer some of the biggest questions about life and, hmm. and meaning and, and purpose. They've actually moved on entirely. Like the church isn't even, the Christian voice isn't even invited to the table anymore. And that is where you're now entering into a truly a post-Christian era where you have entirely new opportunities to share the gospel with people who are totally unfamiliar and that's, that's kind of where we're headed in that way. Um, I often think of like Billy Graham because Billy Graham, when we look at like the era that Billy Graham um, preached and I mean, just such an amazing ministry, like Billy Graham, if you actually look at what he said and how he preached, you would just get up and be like, the Bible says, and then he'd say like Jesus died for our sins and we all need to run to the front now and give our life to him. And it would flood arenas. Right. But Billy Graham evangelized and preached in a context where most of the people had a familiarity with the gospel story. And he was just God's herald, reminding them of a story that they had forgotten. And a certain level of trust for that story. Too, That's right. Because I totally. think there's a difference between Billy Graham saying the Bible says and you and I saying the Bible says. Absolutely. Because, I mean, just the contextual, the, the textual criticism that goes with. The Bible says, well, that's how right. do you know that's what the Bible says? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Then totally. you're taking like graduate level courses in, in biblical criticism to talk yeah. about it all of a sudden. To deconstruct so. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like um, in a lot of the work that we've been able to do with young adults, especially um, I forget who, who coined this term, but talking about a post Bible Christian, hmm. um, um, it, it might've been um, John Collins from the Bible project. Uh, talking about a post Bible Christian where like a lot of young people actually see the Bible, not as like an asset to the faith, but as a stumbling block to it. And to wrestle with some of the, um, the, the views that they think, again, more pose moral problems or, or ethical questions that things that are described in scripture and helping them understand, you know, again, getting back to like, so what, what does the Bible do mm. and what's the role of the Bible in our faith? So I think you're, I think you're exactly right. Uh, what is it? look like for the church to be relevant in a post-Christian world. Mm -hmm. um, you, you made reference during the talk about hospitals and uni modern universities, like these things that and you mentioned a little bit in the Q&A as well for the public when we were talking about that. You know, there are these things that without Christians, the medical system looks completely different, yeah. right? I think about people like Galileo, yeah. uh, someone who was actually threatened by the church <laughs> for being a heretic when really he was discovering things that we now all hold to be true. Like the earth actually rotates around the sun and not <laughs> right. vice versa. Things that for the most part, I'm going to say people just think are true. Yeah. Um, and yet the church was after him. Is there space still for the church to be a thought leader or do we need to change tactics completely? That's a really good question. I, I think, um, I think, I think the theology that matters most in a post Christian culture isn't the theology we profess, uh, but it's the theology we practice. Hmm. And, and I know, I, I know we know this, that, you know, it's, it's that our love for God leads to our obedience and that it's, you know, the good work of the gospel that leads to our good works on behalf of that, and that we don't work for our salvation, but that we work from it. But I do think in a post-Christian world, when there are so many uh, questions around morality and what actually is right and good, mm -hmm. that the church does have an opportunity to really prioritize doing good over simply just yelling about being right. And knowing that, of course, we do have the truth, uh, but that actually we would lead with, with doing good, creating mm -hmm. spaces where, um, like the hospital, right? Like that we would actually yeah. have our dinner tables and our churches and our homes and our porches become hospitals uh, for people. 
that are confused, that are navigating all sorts of um, complexities in, in our modern world, especially when it comes to identity and who we are and where we belong. I think the church has um, the power to be a thought leader in that. Um, it just takes a little bit more intentionality about how we do that. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it wouldn't be a podcast with Dustin Borland if I didn't mention Rosaria Butterfield, but hey. um, you know, she, in her book, <laughs> The Gospel Comes with the House Key, when I heard her story, like just, it seems like she doesn't have a lock on her front door. And I think she even talks about getting robbed <laughs> right. in her book. Like yeah. people went yeah, and stole does. a bunch of stuff and she's like, oh, I didn't see this coming. Like <laughs> yeah. I wanted people to come into my house that I could serve them. And they took my jewelry and I didn't mean for that to happen, but here it right. is. Like, what do we do with this? Yeah. I, I really do like that idea of like our tables being, mm-hmm. you know, those hospitals now and radical hospitality being a path forward. Yeah. Um, especially in a technological world that's missing out on so much of the human interaction that we need, right? Yeah. Like sitting down and choosing to put your phones away so you right. can look someone in the eye and enjoy a conversation. Uh, my wife and I often joke, you know, she'll say, I wonder what's the name of that actor? And I'll start asking my Apple watch and she'll see if she can think of it before my Apple right. watch has given me the answer. And once yeah. in a while I win, but usually she remembers it first and we always laugh, but right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This idea of radical hospitality is the next mm-hmm. step for yep. the church. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and um, like you just said, even just like Googling everything, um, sociologists are talking about lingering spaces Yeah, is what they're calling them. Yeah. And especially for younger generations where the digital age, um, there's there's phantom communities. You know, we, we have, we're constantly connected in community uh, online and some in person, but that we're missing these lingering spaces. We're yeah. missing the sofas and yeah. the fire pits yeah. of life. Um, Coffee shops without Wi-Fi. It, right. Exactly. Yeah. Where we are actually just forced to like, let's just sit and be like, let's be human. Um, and, and kind of just talk and, and work through that. So I think that again, our tables and, and positioning ourselves as hosts and practicing that kind of hospitality will continue to um, be one of the main ways that we demonstrate the welcome of the gospel. And then in doing that, it'll give us opportunities to actually proclaim the welcome of the gospel. Hmm. Dustin, thank you so much for your time. I know it's been uh, a lot of stuff that you've been researching. You're working on your thesis for this right now. Yeah, so yeah. looking forward probably to reading that someday. We at NBC will be praying for you in your ministry uh, at that. Springvale. Uh, and just thank you. And you're so grateful that you've brought all this knowledge and, and for our podcast listeners who get it too. So thank you. Yeah, thank and you. And just know that we're praying for you. All right. Thanks, Luke. Thank you so much, everyone, for giving this week a listen. My prayer is that hearing these conversations are not discouraging to you, but instead a call to faithfulness and trust in what God is planning for our communities. Dustin, thank you, brother, for all the thought and time that you put into this session, into the Q&A. I deeply appreciate your thinking and look forward to what God is going to do next in your life and ministry. We're praying for you. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend, subscribing on your favorite podcast app, or following along on NBC's social media pages. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio recording by the Summer 2023 AV team, and the theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina tabakal See you next time for another episode of Transforming Culture. you